0: Would you bow with me? Fathers, we come to this most important time in our gathering where we open up your word and uh, we seek to learn from it. Father, I just pray that you would be honored in the way that I preach your word. I pray that you would be honored in the way that this congregation listens to the preaching of your word, and I pray that you would be honored in the way that all of us respond to to your word. Father, bless this time for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I speak to you today from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, about exiles on mission. Have you ever heard this phrase describing Christians in the world, but not of the world? You ever heard that? Probably most of us have. It's a pretty well-known saying. It's not a direct quotation from Scripture, but it is based on biblical truth, and it's Almost a direct quotation from Jesus' prayer for his disciples that we find in John chapter 17. And it's a great phrase. There's nothing inherently wrong with saying that we as Christians are in the world, but not of the world. I mean, Jesus basically said that himself, but there's a danger in that saying. We could be tempted to think that it means that since we are not of the world, we should try to remove ourselves as much as we can from the world. However, in John chapter 17, Jesus actually says that though his followers are in the world, but not of the world, he is sending them in to the world. That's another part of that prayer. The not of the world part of the prayer is a call to look different from the world while living on mission in the world. We don't want the world in us, but we do want to be In this world, we have a purpose. We have a calling. We have a mission. One Christian writer suggested, and I think rightly so, that it might serve us better to change that slogan from in but not of to not of but sent into. The emphasis still on uh, on us not being of the world, but also with an added emphasis on us being sent into this world to remind us of the mission. In the same way that it could be easy to miss the missional aspect of Jesus' call to not be of the world, it might have been easy for Peter's readers to miss the point of his description of them as exiles. Their status as exiles, our status as exiles in this world, doesn't mean that we should try to escape from this world. In fact, just like Jesus' prayer in John 17, Peter writes in this letter, As he calls his readers exiles, he writes to these Christians that the opposite is true about us wanting to run from this world. We are exiles in this world, but we are exiles on mission in this world. And there's some things that we need to understand and apply to our lives if we are going to live on mission in our world. If you'll turn your attention to 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is the word of God. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And Peter is saying this, that we must live on mission as exiles by refusing to sin and by choosing to do good deeds in the face of persecution so that more people will become worshipers of God. We must live on mission as exiles. If you recall, Peter, in the opening to this letter, calls his readers, these Christians, elect exiles. So far in this letter, we have been called to have lives that are built on the foundation of praise to God for His great salvation. You can see that in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. We've been called to live lives according to the standard of holiness that God has set. You can see that in 1 Peter chapter 13, uh, 1, verse 13, excuse me, through chapter 2, verse 3. And then He called us to live lives infused with our new identity as God's chosen people. And that was chapter 2, verses 4 through chapter two, verse ten. Now our focus, and Peter's focus for his readers, is shifting from our relationship to one another in Christ, our identity in Christ, and how we share that with one another, to our relationship to the world. I want us to see actually four relationships in these two verses, and these four relationships will are uh, stem from four truths that we learn about ourselves as. Exiles on mission, but I want us to think about it in terms of operations. Now, I don't mean operations on a surgical table, I mean like operations in a war, right? When an army has a mission in a war, they're trying, ultimately, their mission is to win that war. That's their mission, but they have certain operations along the way that if they'll accomplish those operations, then that will lead to an overall victory. So I want us to look at these two verses and four operations, four truths that we must engage in if we're going to accomplish our mission. First, I want us to notice that that we have a unique relationship to the world. This is Operation Be Strange. Operation Be Strange. Now, some of you are thinking, I know some people that would be really good at that. They're pretty strange. Maybe you're thinking, I'm already strange. I know I am. Um, Sometimes I think that that's me. I think people think I'm strange. But here's what I mean. We are strangers to our world. Here's our new relationship to our world. We have a new identity in Christ. We have a new relationship with Him. But that also means we have a new relationship to the world in which we live. This is right on the heels, remember, of Peter emphasizing our new identity. Uh, He makes a contrast even in the last section... Um, He says after he explains those in verse uh, seven and eight, those who do not believe in the cornerstone, they they stumble over it, which means they're not honored. They're put to shame. Verse nine says, but you are a chosen race. So there's a contrast in our standing before God, but there's also a contrast in our standing before the world. Our shamelessness before God means that the world is now going to try to put us to shame. God is going to honor us. We learned that back in verse seven. But the world will despise us. Our new identity raises our status in God's eyes while lowering our status in the eyes of the world. Our new identity means that we are now welcome in heaven. And at the same time, we are rejected. We are unwelcome in this world. We must not celebrate our new identity, which we've done for the past two weeks, without also accepting our new status, that we are strangers in this world. Peter uses two words here to talk about our status, our strangeness. He uses the word that could, words that could be translated sojourners and exiles. Perhaps your translation uses the word aliens or, or, or maybe strangers. Talk about aliens has become more and more popular. Talked about that with someone just the other day. And uh, we we're talking about aliens. I think that's mostly a, a result of Hollywood and lots of movies about aliens. If I were to ask you to draw a picture of an alien, what would it look like? If I said, all right, take, take your sermon notes right now and draw a picture of what an alien looks like. I'm not even saying they exist. I'm just saying draw what you think. If they did exist, they would look like. I, 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 can, I, can, I can't draw it because I'm not a drawer, but I've got, I've got a picture on my phone of, of an alien. I really do picture of me i don't take a lot of selfies (laughs) actually none unless i've got one of my babies in my arms but peter is calling us aliens if you are a follower of jesus just draw a picture of yourself you and i who trusted in christ we are strangers we are aliens, we are sojourners, we are exiles in this world. Several places in, in First Peter, he's already used both of these words. And he's not talking about two different statuses, he's using two synonyms to emphasize our status, to say the same thing. We are strangers in this world. We gave this definition many weeks ago as we started 1 Peter, and we saw that he calls the readers elect exiles in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. We gave this definition. To be exiles means being separated by God from the world while remaining in the world. Or to say it another way, to be an elect exile means God has chosen to give me a new citizenship which should define my lifestyle while I temporarily live in my old homeland. And we also said this, being an exile in this world doesn't mean that we're homeless. It means that this world is not our home. We have a home. In fact, Peter talks about it in his second letter in chapter 3, verse 13 of Second Peter. He says this, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is our future home. It is our home now. We just don't live there yet. And because we are strangers, because we are exiles, that means our lives are going to look different than the world around us. I I cannot emphasize this enough as we walk through this letter of 1 Peter. I don't think Peter can emphasize enough. We must be reminded that our lives are going to look different. If we are following Jesus, then it should not surprise us that our lives look different. But here's the problem. What do sojourners What do exiles, what do strangers in a foreign land often experience? They often experience rejection, often experience mockery, misunderstanding, discrimination, injustice, slander, suffering, insults. And in fact, Peter is specifically going to mention some of those very things. Mockery in chapter 4, verse 4. Injustice towards Christians in chapter 2, verse 19. Slander in chapter 3, verse 16. Suffering in chapter, well, really a lot of First Peter. Specifically, chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Insults in chapter 4, verse 14. And we're going to see these in the weeks to come. This is what sojourners and exiles often experience. That means that our lives as Christians here on this earth will be difficult. So then I want to ask this question for you and for me. How should it make us feel? Like how should it make us feel that, that we are strangers, that we're exiles, that we're aliens in this world? Well, my first answer might surprise you a little bit, but I think you'll agree with me if you are, if you are a Christian. I think one way we should feel about it is thankful. I think we should be thankful that we're exiles in this world. We say, well, why would I feel thankful that I'm an exile, that I'm a sojourner, that I'm out of place in this world? And because of that, I'm going to experience all of these things. Well, I think it should make us thankful because, listen, here's what it means to be an exile. We don't belong to the world which rejects its creator, is led by Satan and is doomed to destruction. I don't want to belong to that world. I don't want to belong to that people. I'm thankful that God has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. As we looked at last week, I'm thankful I don't belong to that world. We belong to a long line of people chosen by God to be exiles in this world. In fact, our status as exiles joins us to all of God's people in the past. We go all the way back to Abraham. Remember, God called Abraham out of his homeland to go to a foreign land. He didn't know where he was going or what was going to happen, but he obeyed. And when he got there, he, after he lived there a little, a little time, he said this about himself. Now, this is Abraham. This is the, the birth of God's people. And he says this in Genesis chapter 23. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Talking to the people in the land of Canaan. From the beginning, God's people have been sojourners in exiles. So our status as exiles means, hey, we're a part of God's people. That's something to be thankful for. But I think it also is sobering. We should also feel a sense of, of, of sobering. Realizing that I shouldn't be surprised when life in this world, living as a Christian, is hard. And Peter's already called us in chapter 1, verse 13, to be sober-minded as he called us to action to live holy lives. It's a reality check, right? That this life is not just going to be full of fun and games as a Christian. Full of joy always, but not always full of fun and games for the person who is seeking to follow Jesus. We have to be, be vigilant We live in enemy territory. We've got to be on guard against looking like the world around us. One writer said this, A temporary resident in a foreign land is not likely to adopt the customs of the land through which he is traveling. Not only is it not likely for us, it is commanded for us not to adopt the customs of the land through which we are traveling, this world. We're commanded not to look like this world. It's not going to be easy. Why would Peter emphasize our strangeness in the world? Well, I think he would do that to remind us that we're not who we once were. And therefore, we must not act like we once acted to remind us we're no longer loyal to our former earthly master. And therefore, we must live for our true king to remind us that the ways of the world are not our ways. And therefore, we must refuse to walk in that way any longer to remind us that we are now living in enemy territory. And therefore, we must be ready to Fight. Operation number one is Operation Be Strange. But as we think about this battle, we're led right into Operation number two. And that is Operation Flesh Fighters. Operation Flesh Fighters. Here's your truth. We are enemies of our flesh. Our flesh is enemy of us. And we are enemies of our flesh. We noticed our relationship to the world. Now we want to see our relationship to our flesh. What is this flesh? What's it talking about? Well, first, let me let me mention the strategy of an enemy. We're talking about these four operations. It's our strategy as believers that God has given us to live on mission in our world. What about the strategy, strategy of the enemy? The strategy of the enemy is to distract us from our new identity with the temporary pleasures of our old identity so that we'll gradually fall back into our old way of living with its focus on gratifying the desires of our sinful flesh, forgetting that we've been rescued from that which spells only destruction for us. Let me remind you, Christian, of who you once were. Actually, let me let God remind you of who you once were. Ephesians chapter 2, we find this, and you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It says that we once lived in the passions of our flesh. When we give into the passions of our flesh, we start looking like Jesus, less And less and more and more like the world. The more we look like the world, the less effective we will be in our mission, which we'll see in a moment, to point people to Jesus so that they can become worshipers of God as well. But let me ask this question if we're talking about an enemy, we're talking about fighting, who is this enemy? Our minds probably quickly jump to Satan and I would agree with you and God's word would agree with you. Even Peter will agree with you in chapter five, where he's going to say that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But here in chapter two, he doesn't refer to Satan. He refers to our own flesh. Your enemy is not only the devil. Your enemy is you, Christian, at least the old you. Your enemy is the old you. It is your flesh. We can define the flesh as this, the human nature apart from God. And while we have been rescued from our sin, we will not be fully rescued from the temptation of sin until Christ returns. James chapter 4 verse 1 says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's talking to Christians, by the way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James says? Is it not this? The devil made you do it. <laughs> That's not what he says. The devil doesn't make us do anything. Let's not give him that much credit. James says this. Why are you fighting and why are you quarreling among yourselves? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. Your passions are at war within you. The devil is your enemy, but he uses your fleshly desires to tempt you. That means anywhere. At any moment, your old flesh can rear its ugly head and the temptations to revert back to your old way of living will be there. And those temptations are strong, so strong that Scripture, Peter here and all throughout Scripture, refers to this as a war. The spirit life is the spirit life is incompatible with works of the flesh. The spirit filled life, though, is not exempt from the temptations of the flesh and that means nothing less than war, a war inside of us on a daily basis. One of my favorite places in the Bible that talks about this war is Galatians chapter 5. And Paul says this to the Galatians. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not. Under the law. I remember my dad heard him say many times, the moment that you trust in Christ, a big bullseye gets drawn on your back. And for the rest of your life here on this earth, there are are flaming arrows being launched your way. But in addition to that, there's some flaming arrows arising up within us. Satan's attacking from without ourselves. Our old flesh is attacking from within. There is war. And if we don't fight, we will find ourselves reverting back to our former manner of life. Even Peter in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So to live for the rest of Of the time in the flesh. So we're living in the flesh. No longer for human passions. But for the will of God. We are living in the flesh. But we are not controlled by the flesh. We are not living for the flesh. That is the battle that you and I live in on a daily basis. What are some of these actions of the flesh that scripture talks about? Well, as Peter says, abstain here abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. We see that same word over in First Thessalonians chapter 4 where Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. We'll go back to Paul's writing to the Galatians in chapter five and pick up where we left off as he talked about the flesh being opposed to the spirit. He said, now the works of the flesh are evident. It's clearly it's clear to see them. He says the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is it for you, Christian? What passion of the flesh is waging war against your soul? If you say... There's not any. I would say you're in a dangerous place because you don't see the enemy standing in front of you, even living within you. What is the passion of the flesh that's waging war against your soul today? What is it that characterizes Your former manner of life before you trusted Christ, that still wants to come in and creep in and cause you to fall back into that way of life that God saved you from. Maybe it's fits of rage. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's lying tongue. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's a complaining attitude. Whatever it is, Christian, it is waging war against your soul. So fight, fight, fight. How do we fight? We fight with the spiritual disciplines God has given us Bible study, committing Scripture to memory. I'll hide your word in my heart, the psalmist says, so that I might not sin against you. With prayer, casting our burdens. Upon the Lord. Sometimes we think about our burdens as simply physical ailments in our lives or bad news that we hear, but there's a burden that we all ought to have—a burden of, uh, of this flesh rearing its ugly head—that we would lay that before the Lord and say, "God, help me in this area of life. I want to honor You in this area of my life. Help me." We pray, we read the Bible, we study, and we fellowship with other believers. You want a, you want a surefire way? To lose this battle against the temptations that, that, that well up within us. Divorce yourself from active involvement in the local church. Don't hang out with other believers. Don't encourage one another as believers. Don't study God's Word together. Don't pray together with other believers. And I can guarantee you, you will see the works of the flesh begin to take over your life there are things that we can do to fight, but we fight with confident hope because we know that we've been rescued from our sin. We are filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit is much powerful, more powerful than the works of the flesh. Can, can I pause for just a second? Let me just speak to those of you who have been Christians a long time. There's a lot of you in here, and I praise the Lord for that. Many in here have been Christians a long time, it's easy for us to, for us to think that if I've been a Christian for 20 years or 40 years or 60 years, that I've kind of won this battle, like the battle's kind of over. This battle lasts until the day we breathe our last breath or Christ returns. I was listening to a historian uh, this week, a Polish historian, and um, I know some of you are saying, yep, you're strange, but I was. And um, and it was very interesting. He was talking about Napoleon, and uh, and, and I was learning all kinds of things. But this, this thought just just struck me he said um he said napoleon you know well known for winning all these incredible military battles and 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 he's gone down famously or infamously in history however you want to say that but the 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 um this historian said this he said the problem though was later in life napoleon got lazy He got lazy. He looked around. He saw his large armies. He looked back over his life and he saw all of these victories, these large victories, and he got lazy. And it led to his downfall. And I just want to issue a word of warning to those who have been Christians a long time. Don't get lazy in your walk with the Lord. Satan can wreak havoc in the life of a lazy Christian. We've seen our relationship to the world, Operation Be Strange. We've seen our relationship to our flesh, Operation Flesh Fighters. But next, I want us to notice our relationship to unbelievers. And this is Operation Good Deeds. Operation Good Deeds. We are signposts to the lost. We are signposts to the lost. He doesn't just say, don't do these things. He then transitions to a more positive statement. He says, but you should do these things. Don't, don't engage in the passions of the flesh, but you should keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter's used this word conduct multiple times in this letter. He's going to use it some more talking about the way that we live. This is talking about our behavior in life. Who are these Gentiles that he's talking about? When we see the word Gentiles, we often think non-Jews. But it's very interesting. Peter uses this word um, for a different group of people. He's not talking about non-Jews here when he uses this word that can be translated nations or Gentiles. He's talking about non-believers. Just like in the Old Testament, the Israelites were the people of God and everyone else were the Gentiles. Now we just studied our identity in the previous verses. We are the people of God, all Christians, no matter what language you speak, no matter the color of your skin, no matter where you live on this planet. We are all the people of God, which means the Gentiles now refers to everyone who's not a believer. And so we are signposts to the nations. We are signposts to the lost around us. And while we fight against our flesh, we don't fight against unbelievers. We love them and we shower them with good deeds. We are being called here. It's very simple. I don't have to go into a huge explanation. Notice it says do good things, do good deeds. Let your life be filled with good works. There's an obstacle to it. There always is in war. There always is when there's a mission and an operation that needs to take place. Here's the obstacle. They're going to speak against you as evildoers, Peter says. Do good deeds. And by the way, the world will speak against you as evildoers. Not because you're being mean towards them, but you're going to be doing good things and they're going to call you evildoers. And you shouldn't be surprised. The Greco-Roman society that these uh, Christians lived in, that Peter's writing to, they, they hated Christians. And I would argue that the American society that we live in is growing to hate Christians more and more. We're called bigots for standing up for God's Word. We're told to get with the times. Society says that we're stuck in the past and we need to get on the right side of history. How then do we respond? Well, that's where Peter's going in the rest of chapter 2, and in chapter 3, and even into chapter 4, how we respond. But in this summary, these two verses that are really a summary of the next large section of Peter, he gives us basically two ways not to respond. One, we don't retaliate. And second, we don't retreat. We don't retaliate with evil, with hateful acts toward unbelievers. We don't call them names, even if they call us names. We don't post hateful Facebook posts on Facebook about those who are living lifestyles of sin, even if they post hateful things about us. We don't shun them even if they shun us. We don't retaliate. But at the same time, we don't retreat from the world. We don't say, well, we'll just keep our Christianity private. We're not going to stand up for truth in the public square. We'll gather for worship one day a week, and then the rest of the week we'll just blend into society. Both of those are wrong responses. We don't retaliate when they call us evildoers and we don't retreat when they call us evil, So what is the right response? Peter says, do good deeds. Do good deeds. Produce good deeds in keeping with our Christian beliefs even when they call us evildoers. This means we are to love unbelievers, serve unbelievers, befriend unbelievers and show hospitality to unbelievers. When your homosexual neighbor says Christians are hateful, then you invite her over for dinner. When your co-worker makes fun of you for not laughing at the dirty jokes, you pay for his lunch, or you hold the door for him, or you offer to help him finish the job for the day. When your classmate hatefully says, why do you believe in that stupid Jesus stuff? You respond with gentleness in your voice, and you lovingly explain, That Jesus died on the cross to rescue people from their sin. And you've chosen to follow Him. We don't retaliate. But we don't stop doing the good things we are to do as Christians. We don't retreat. We produce good deeds that are visible to the world so the world will see us and turn from rebelling against God to worshiping God. Notice notice the purpose here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds, which means we can't retreat. They've got to be able to see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is a day of visitation coming, the day when Christ returns. And we want as many people to be worshiping God on that day. One of the ways that people will turn from rejecting God to worshiping God is when they see God. Our good deeds. Good deeds in the face of evil will make unbelievers take notice. Good deeds that require sacrifice on our part will make unbelievers take notice. Will our good deeds always be warmly, warmly received? Absolutely not. Sometimes our good deeds will be offensive to others. Like when we call on lawmakers to put an end to legalized abortions. Well, that's going to offend some people, right? They're going to be offended. They're going to say, well, that offends me. And what I stand for. But that is a good deed, protecting human life, that's going to offend people. But what we don't want to do are things that unnecessarily offend people. Like yelling murderers at demonstrations in a pro-abortion march. Maybe they are, but screaming insults at them is not going to make them want to worship the God that we claim to worship. Good deeds. Not just deeds. Good deeds. What's the goal? What's the objective? So that they will become worshipers of God too. These good deeds come from a heart of brokenness and compassion for the lost. When we see them walking in their sin and we desperately want them too to be called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And so no matter How much insults come our way. We keep doing good deeds. We keep doing good deeds because we love them so much. And we want to see them rescued from their sin. Will the lost always respond by turning to God? No. They won't always. But we don't have control of that. What we do have control of is our actions. The lost may not turn to God, but may it not be because we failed to do good deeds. We're signposts. Every minute of every day, Christian, you are either pointing people to the God that you claim to worship or away from the God that you claim to worship by the way that you're living your life. Let me ask you a question. What direction is the signpost of your life pointing? Either people are being led to worship God by our actions or hate the God we claim to worship. But notice our ultimate goal here. And this is the last operation in really just kind of want to tag this on the end and I'm not going to spend much time on it but not because it's not important we just see this as an underlying theme beginning here and actually going through the rest of this larger section which ends in chapter 4 verse 11 he's going to be talking about our mission as exiles from this point on through chapter 4 verse 11 in 1st Peter and our ultimate goal really you see here is god's glory so we saw range operation flesh fighters operation good deeds and our last operation is simply operation worship. Operation worship. Notice our relationship to God. We've seen our relationship to the world, to our flesh, to unbelievers and now to God. We must be passionate for God to be glorified. If we are going to live as exiles on mission Notice, notice that he says, so that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. And then at the end of this larger section in chapter 4, verse 11, he ends this section about our mission by saying this, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, if your ultimate goal in life is not to see the glory of God magnified in every area, in every facet of your life. Then the obstacles of the world calling us evildoers, the daily struggle against sin will get the best of you and you won't live on mission in this world, even even behind or under or over or however you want to visualize it, our desire to see lost people saved must be a desire to see God glorified. Because sometimes they're going to reject. Sometimes they're not going to believe. So what's going to keep us going? Realizing that as we live on mission, regardless of the response from the world, God is being glorified. And our desire is that on that day of visitation, there would be more worshipers of God than there are right now. And so we live on mission so that the worshipers of God will multiply so that God receives the maximum amount of glory when he comes. We must be zealous for the glory of God, not to steal it from Him, but to shine a spotlight on it. The way that we live our lives, in the way that we interact with those around us, in the way that we wage war against the passions of our flesh, in the way that we live out our lives as exiles here on this earth. I want to conclude with a quote. From a Christian writer and then I want to ask you three questions and then we're going to close this writer said this here then is the great timeless truth the best argument for Christianity is a real Christian and therefore whether we like it or not every Christian is an advertisement for Christianity by his life He either commends Christianity to others or He makes others think less of Christianity. The strongest missionary force in the world is a Christian life. It doesn't mean we don't speak the Gospel to people. We have to do that. But as we do, our life must back it up. Three questions. What is your life saying to the watching world? Are you engaged in these operations, Christian? Are you intentionally living on mission for the glory of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, I don't know about every heart in this place the only heart I can speak for is my own. And Lord, as I think about these operations that we are to engage in, Father, I'm convicted. Father, there are times when I don't live like an exile. I live like I belong to this world. I blend in rather than stand out. Father, sometimes it's because I'm scared of what people will say. Sometimes it's because I'm not battling against the passions of my flesh. They're waging war against my soul. Father, sometimes it's easier to, to retaliate or retreat than it is to do good deeds towards unbelievers, especially when they speak evil against us. Father, sometimes it's it's easier to live for my own glory than for Your glory. Father, I know this is true for me and perhaps it's true for others here in this place. And so, Lord, I just pray that in a moment as we stand and as we sing, Father, if, if You've convicted our hearts of maybe a sin that we are allowing to have control in our lives, that we're not putting to death on a daily basis, Father, if there's some passion of the flesh that's waging war against our soul and we're giving into to it, Father, I pray that that we would get on our face before you and we would repent of that. We would trust in your forgiving love towards us displayed on Calvary's Cross. And that we would depend upon your spirit to not do that thing anymore, whatever it is. Father, there's a there's some conviction in our lives of of treating unbelievers poorly. Whether in person or on social media or just in conversation behind their backs. Father, I pray that we would get in our face and we would repent of that sin. And Father, we would ask that You would help us to just pour good deeds out of our lives for the sake of the lost, so that they can become worshipers of You as well. Father, maybe we just need to pray in this time of response, Lord, to give us a fresh vision of Your glory. So that that the things of this earth will, will, will fade away and that we'll be just fixated on how glorious you are and would live for nothing else except to see your glory magnified in our lives and in the lives of those around us, all over our world. Father, I just ask that we would just be obedient to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.